1: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers. To hear their stories, what inspired their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. Ira Glass caused a revolution in public radio, and he is now its primary kingmaker. Glass wasn't the first to share well-crafted stories about so-called ordinary people, but his show, This American Life, connected with a younger generation of public radio listeners, and they became fiercely loyal. Ira Glass has become so popular that the winner of this year's Halloween contest in Fort Green, Brooklyn, was a dog, the small, white, fluffy type, dressed as Ira.
2: This is a level of fame I didn't quite know existed. Right. Is this what you bargained for? No. No. Has this happened to you? I've never
1: won the Fort Greene Pupster Halloween costume event. You've got me there. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little
2: jealous. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure jealousy is, is exactly the right word, but it's something. It's a weird thing to have happened. Um, How do you feel about,
1: I mean, I listened to Fred Armisen do the episode with you where he's doing you. Yeah. And I try to do you all the time. Because you, you fit into a category, those you, yours works, yours is, yours is of a style, of announcer, host, journalist, broadcaster, whatever you want to call it. I mean, I hear so many people now on the radio who are the opposite
2: of what I grew up with. And I think it comes down to, like, what do you think authority comes from? And back when we were kids, authority came from enunciation, precision. Right, Delivery. Authority. And a kind of gravitas that you are bringing to the character you're playing. And I think that, you know, not just me, but a whole generation of people feel like, well, that character is obviously a phony, pretending to be this, like, cartoon sort of, like the newscaster on The Simpsons with a deep voice having gravitas. And so I think a lot of us just went in the other direction. And for me, I felt like, you know, any story hits you harder if the person delivering it doesn't sound like some news robot, but in fact sounds like a real person, having the reactions a real person would have and be surprised and amazed and amused. So the very thing I'm talking
1: about you were aware of when you were doing your show. And conscious of,
2: right. yeah, no. And, and I mean, I started off at NPR when I was 19 at NPR in Washington. Doing what? First it was an intern, and then I worked on a documentary series where I learned a lot of things. By the time I was 20, 21, I was a, I was a production assistant on all things considered. As that meant were you going I, to college? Between college, basically, I would go to college and come back. I went to Northwestern for two years and then switched to Brown, graduated from Brown in semiotics, which is a field of sort of pretentious literary theory, but actually is is all about how to structure a narrative. So it's enormously practical training, and there are things that I learned in school that I use every day to this day. But anyway, then we go back and forth between college and working at NPR. And at first, when I tried to be on the radio, like most people, like I tried to be the official thing, And then at some point I trained myself out of it because I thought it's not as effective or as untrained it. yourself out of it yeah. yeah yeah exactly and NPR obviously has a, like a tradition of people going back to the 70s who talked not like normal announcers but like people Susan Stamberg was the host of All Things Considered which I think people today might not even remember this lady who really set a tone where she, it's, she she's just seemed like some upper west side New York lady like leaning into the microphone mentally talking to you over the radio did you just say mentally the adverb mentally you don't get a you don't get a, that doesn't get much. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) That's that's an
1: adverb that exists only on the Upper West Side, but I got (laughs) it. She was mentally leaning
2: into the microphone. Yes, and talking like a person. So there were other people doing it. I heard people doing it. I was just like, that's the direction I got to go in.
1: I mean, when I think about your show, I wonder what it's like for you editorially in terms of do you sit there and you consciously try to take out of it any uh,
2: political point of view. I mean, the kinds of stories we're doing, I think, you know, when we take on something that's in the news— you know, what we're looking for is a story with characters and scenes and emotion and and looking for a way to, to show something new that people don't know. So, for example, when we did an hour on Guantanamo, like, we didn't go into it advocating Guantanamo should be shut down or it right. shouldn't be shut down. You know, like, we we don't, we don't have an agenda that way. Like, when we did an hour on it, we did an hour because it had been a couple years into Guantanamo existing. And we read that, I can't remember the number of people, the number of detainees, like a couple hundred detainees had been released. We, we had discovered, like, you know, the U.S. had determined, like, you guys aren't enemy combatants. You guys, you know, go back to Pakistan or wherever. And we had noticed that nobody in America had interviewed them. Just to ask, like, the normal things, you know, that, like, you'd want to know, like, how are you treated? Do you want to kill us all now? People, but, but and, do, and so, like, you go into that, like, you, you, the question of, like, what our stand politically on Guantanamo is, it doesn't no, matter. No, no, I
1: appreciate that, but I'm wondering, do people sometimes view you as being liberal? Of course they do, because
2: we're, we're on public radio, which is seen as liberal. liberal. Though, mm-hmm. though, when you look at the studies of, like, what actually gets covered on the news programs and the way it's covered, I feel like the numbers bear out the fact that it is not more liberal than other news sources. That said, There's a tone in the way certain things are covered that conservatives hear and from talking to conservatives like I know, like that I think that's a real thing. Um, I think at one point there was a show that we did on one of the elections. And, and it was about how people voted and why they voted the way they voted. And I had a long series of discussions with these people who are, like, swing voters. Because I was fascinated with it. Like, Alec, you just think about, like, an election of, like, Kerry versus Bush. And you're coming down to, like, the last three weeks before the election. Who are the people who haven't decided? Like, how can you – like, like whatever you say, like, those are two very different – What are the unknowns? Thoughts. Yeah, like, what do you have to know? Like, you know them both really well. Like, what – yeah, exactly. Especially people who are following the news. Like, like what is there to wonder about at that point? And I think in that show, I came out and said, look, I'm a Democrat, just said to the audience. Because I felt like there was a point in the discussion in my interviews, people were identifying as Republican or Democrats. And I felt like, why pretend anything but this? Like, usually I vote Democratic. That said, like many Democrats, I I find them to be the most annoying party and so not representing what I believe on so many issues and so – lacking in so many ways and so not doing what I would have them do. So even saying that I usually vote Democrat, I feel like doesn't even get near what my actual politics are. Sure, sure. Um, but if I like, have
1: to pick, I make that choice reluctantly.
2: It's the same thing as, like, we've done so many stories about God. At some point, I went on the air and said, like, look, I don't believe in God. Like, I'm just going to put that out in front. So take everything you're about to hear with the grain of salt that you should, right? It's just truth and packaging. And I think that it's different for me as somebody who's on Once a Week— you know, doing a documentary show that's covering, like, a bunch of different stuff. It's different for me than it is for, like, the hosts of All Things Considered or Brian Williams or, you know what I mean? Like, it's just my role is different. And so I think I have that freedom. When did you realize you didn't believe in God? How old were you? Teenager. Teenager. Did you grow up in a religious household? I grew up. It's weird. My parents. We were Jews in the suburbs. So I went to I went to Hebrew school and then went to like the high school version of that. Like I continued past my bar mitzvah and at some point I realized I didn't. It just didn't add up for me. Like you know, you're in love or you're not in love. Like it's just like there's another explanation for everything around me, which makes more sense than there's a big dad who created this all. <laughs> you know. And what the, like, was your explanation? just you know universe has been here there was like some sort of something happened yeah, big bang yeah something like you know Time people climbed up on the shores of uh... yeah actually when i was 13 and 14 the, like one of the things that was a huge influence on me was do you remember the, do you remember these books eric von Daniken was the author chariots of the gods yes Oh, my God. I love this. And I remember being in Hebrew college, Baltimore Hebrew College, and arguing with the teachers there, these old rabbis, about, like, but this passage in, like, Exodus or Genesis, wouldn't this be better explained by these paintings on the ground? You know, like, we were actually visited by the whole theory of it for people who don't know what this is. It was, like, this series of books, and there was TV specials and stuff that if you actually looked at it, it seems like what they're trying to tell us is people visited us from outer space. <laughs> and that's, that's what they witnessed. Yes.
1: Scientology really is closer to what we've
2: been Exactly. There. Scientology has a good point. They're onto it. I remember arguing that in Hebrew college with my professors there, and uh, they were not, they did not buy it at You probably all. got slapped like young Woody Allen in radio
1: <laughs> days. How dare you mention this? <laughs> <laughs> and
2: they cracked you. Aliens from space? The universe is expanding. What, di- what <laughs> difference? What what? It to-
0: what's that to you? <laughs> what <laughs> difference does it make?
2: Lord. Are you an atheist?
1: Uh, no. I... I believe—I don't know what I believe in terms of the specific—I had a Catholic priest once say to me, listen, I I believe in a piece of many religions. The Jews have something to say, and the Muslims have something to say, and the Buddhists have something to say, the Hindus have something to say. He says, sometimes I think I'm a Catholic because they just own the nicest real estate and have the nicest places to hang out in. Wow. And I mean, this was a priest that said that to me. He says, and and I believe in a God. I believe in a—I mean, I believe something had to be responsible for this. And I also believe, oddly enough, as a result of some stories I've heard on your show— you know, we, you know, life itself and stories that come to me make me believe there must be some God behind.
2: This, this is my belief, not a fact. Well, but obviously, my atheist message is not coming through. Yeah, here you, properly. You,
1: you, You're the the subliminal my atheist that me. Trism- yeah, is, 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 you failed. You, I'm failing horribly. The you? one thing you failed at, but you failed at that exactly. What it is. Now we know. Are there some shows? But when we
2: talk, but Ken, you- having said that, I have to say, like, we do a lot of shows on religion. We do a lot of shows on faith because I think it's it's not covered very well. Like, if it's it's a sort of an area of opportunity. If you if you're a, a reporter or a documentary producer. Like in America, it's one thing that's actually the media does a terrible job with. And it's gotten better over the last 15 years, but still like not so great of covering people of faith and covering them in terms that are – that actually document people's relationship with their faith. Like generally in the media – like, there's a whole phase of our show where, where where this was, like, a big thing we were doing a lot of because my feeling, like, looking at it the way people who were religious were covered, there would be these cartoon characters, right? Like, you know, you see them in, like, these right-wing, inflexible, like, doctrinaire in their beliefs. and And when I compared that to the actual Christians who were in my life, they were super thoughtful and way more compassionate and way more... Just just the way they lived their religion was so radically different, even though they were very devout, radically different from what I was seeing. I was like, we need to document this because this is a whole territory of stuff. And so we did a whole set of stuff where I went out with kids on their mission trip. And we did this thing about this minister named Carlton Pearson. And just we did a lot of stuff because it seemed like an uncovered territory. And obviously, like doing that without any – I wasn't trying to bring every, anybody over to my side. That would be boring. It wasn't interesting. Right. I wasn't
1: mean, interested. I had a friend of mine who was an actor who I worked with once. He was very devout, very observant Jew, me and his wife. And I once said to him, what does it mean to you? And Like, what, what is Judaism to you? And he said, to me, it's the study of how we, as human beings, distinguish ourselves from the animals. And when he said that, it just leveled me. I'll take that. I just take all these little pieces and I say to myself, my dad died. And I just had this such an incredible emotional connection to my father. Uh, the president of the United States was shot in 1963. Their energy was such a force in my life and in, in the world at large. Where did they go? Does that energy that is the human soul and the human essence just dissipate? And is it you know, like the, the light switch? Like
2: when you think when you die, it's just over? It's over. And I my. do think that, though I'm always given pause by this Billy Collins poem called The Afterlife where the thesis of the poem is that each one of us goes to the afterlife that he believes in. And I'm always scared of, like, oh, no, if I believe that, that's what I'm going to get.
1: <laughs> it's funny. I thought the same thing. Someone said to me, what do you think is the afterlife, and do you believe in that idea? Maybe they based it off this poem. They said that when you die, it's all in your imagination. And they said, what do you think happens in the afterlife? I said, mine's pretty mundane. Mine's pretty sad. He said, why? I said, well, you go into a room, and it's a screening room, and God is there. We sit down, and he gets you some iced tea, and you have a sandwich. And he's like, so what do you want to know? And you you look at me, and he already knows. He's God. And you're like, you know. He's like, okay, Larry, roll the film. And they show me what really happened in Kennedy's assassination. I want them to start to tell me the truth.
2: And can you also, in that version of it, be like, okay, so on this date in the year, you know, 2014, my wife and I got into an argument. I swear she said this and then I said this and then she said this. But she
1: swears. Mine is very cinematic. And I say, they say, okay, show me the movie. Who was the girl that really loved me the most? Roll it. You get your answers. You
2: You finally get your answers. You you want your answers. You want your answers. What a shame you don't get to do anything with that information. You know, like, as a film, like, if this were to be a film, the thing you're describing, it needs a third act.
1: Observing that my afterlife fantasy requires a third act comes instinctively to Ira. He can't help but think about a conversation as if he's the editor, marking the structural strengths and weaknesses of each anecdote. More of my conversation with Ira Glass coming up. Next time on Here's the Thing, we sit down with actress Julianne Moore. She shares her special technique for getting ready to play a
0: scene. I'm very chatty. I like Mm -hmm. to talk all the way up to action. I do. I do. And if you can't talk to me, I'm really disappointed. Then I get lonely. And I want to be lonely when I'm working. I want to be with my buddy. I want to talk to me. Talk to me. You're my friend. Let's be buddies. Talk to me. What would you do this morning? What would you have for dinner last night? What are you doing later today? Are you cold? Do you (laughs) like that sweater? Do you like my sweater? What are you doing? Action. Acting. I love it. That's my favorite part. (laughs) And then you get this great connection with another human being. And then the scene is like, pooh, comes alive.
1: That's Julianne Moore next time on Here's the Thing. Hi, I'm Alec Baldwin. Don't you think it's cool to care? Carrie Yuma knows fast fashions not sustainable and decided to spin that conscious mindset to create high-quality, low-impact sneakers. Their best-selling Aka style is the perfect, durable sneaker for dressing up or down, pairing a fresh look with broken-in level comfort. Aka is made with organic cotton canvas and ethically sourced rubber and every pair comes with Karayuma's signature cork and Mamona oil insoles. Akka's already found its way into my summer shoe rotation. Find your pair and choose from a range of bold and beautiful colors. Right now, there's 15% off at com slash
0: alec. bits
1: this is alec baldwin and you're listening to here's the thing in january of 2012 this american life ran excerpts of performer mike daisy's solo show the agony and the ecstasy of steve jobs the episode featured segments from Daisy's piece in which he visited a factory in China that made iPhones. Two months after Daisy's piece aired, a reporter discovered discrepancies in his story. Mike Daisy had made things up. This American Life retracted
2: the story, and Ira and his team had to ask themselves, how did this happen? We were pretty good fact-checkers, I thought, before yeah. Mike Daisy. And, and uh, you know, I worked at NPR News, and we, sure. were, we were at the level that we were at at NPR News. Like, we looked into it as well as we could. We talked to over a dozen people who had either been in those factories or were human rights groups that monitored those factories. And, you know, people confirmed everything that he said in the story as things that really happened in these plants, with one exception. He said that he met a 15-year-old going into work at a factory making Apple products. And all the human rights workers everybody we talked to said, like, actually, Apple's, like, super great about that. And, like, it'd be very hard for a subcontractor to have underage workers and has been a leader in this. So if that happened, it was a fluke. And in the original show we did with him, I confronted him with that. And he's like, I don't know what to tell you. I know what to know. Show me a picture of the person, which isn't really telling. But he said, you know, they you know, they give me proof. And, and we sort of put it all of that out there. Did that make you angry? Well, then we found out, like, the one thing that we didn't do is we didn't talk to his translator. Right. And he said, look, I got this phone number, but when I call it, it doesn't, you know, it's some lady in China who I met at the hotel. And, like, and so we, you know, we, we, we gave up. You know, we didn't do that, which at that point we should not have put the thing on the radio. Right. After we broadcast, another reporter found that translator and she said, basically, she was with him his whole time and all these things that he says happened did not happen. Right. And so, Did
1: that make you angry? People trust you. They admire you. No no, no one faults you for that, obviously. And I, I know no, you're not going to say this. This is me saying this. Mike Daisy may be gifted, but he's full of shit. But the thing is, when that happened, did that piss you off? I mean, did that make you angry?
2: I wish him—I I mean, maybe at some level. Like, honestly, like, my first reaction was not being mad at him. Um, is it an atheist thing? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, we've just given up on life, yeah. Alec. No. Um, I mean— I mean, honestly, like, the main thing I thought is, like, I just wondered if we were all going to keep our jobs. You know what I mean? Like, I really wondered, like, is this it? Is the radio show over? Like, that was the main thing I thought. I don't know. I just, I just, it was a mix of things. Mad was in there somewhere, but definitely was not the biggest part. Other people on my staff were definitely like way madder at him and were sure, mad. Sure. But I had worked with him so closely in adapting the thing for the radio, I felt very close to him actually. And I just felt like like oh like your friend did something. I mean what we you know, right. it just met him doing something. You had a thing. bit of a relationship with him. I had a relationship with him. I so was like, oh no, like what have you done? And that was a way bigger part of it. But, but you're asking, like, has th- have things changed around the radio show since then? And the answer is, is yes. And now in addition to doing, like, all the stuff we did back when I worked on Morning Edition and All Things Considered to, like, see that stories are true, we have professional fact checkers, like at The New Yorker or something. And so every script is gone through by fact checkers who we hire. And they go back to all the sources in the story. And they go back to everything. And it's just, like— it's a, lot a of huge. It's yeah. a lot of work, but I have to say it's been lovely. It's been awesome having now, now apropos. But
1: now apropos of that, when you, you know, setting aside, I should say the fact-checking thing and the whole Daisy thing and, and, and how he played that out. The, some of your shows I listen to. You know, these are among my favorite shows. I mean, like the Adrian Schoolcraft thing. I mean, my my, my hair was standing up on my arms when the cops are in his house. In the end, they're going to take him away to quote unquote to the hospital. You know what I mean? Do you ever fear any blowback from shows like that? The Carmen Cigara one that was on recently. Do you ever fear that you know the Cops are going to come and get you, or <laughs> come and get somebody in your building,
2: or I have yeah, never that. Crafted. No, no, I mean, you really
1: pulled the covers on a lot of people on that piece. Or well, the uh,
2: crafted, I should say, Schoolcraft did. Right. and well, it had all been mm-hmm. published in the in the Village Voice. Right. So I felt like we were just doing sure. kind of a cover version of what they had done in the Village Voice. So right. no, I definitely did not. But I think you have a much bigger fear. audience
1: in the Village Voice.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the only people who New York cops would care about is people in New York. <laughs> right. so like, so the Village Voice reached everybody who they would care about. Like, no, I didn't worry about that, and I didn't worry like when we did a show about the. Fed that like the Fed was going to somehow like shut down my bank account or something.
1: Right. Like n- no. I would imagine that for you, because you seem like such a level headed guy, smart, mature, all all these good things. It must be impossible for you, very difficult for you to fire someone. Have you ever had to fire someone from the from
2: the company? Yeah, no, I've had to fire a few people. Yeah. Yeah. And, Did you and, do the firing? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, because the radio show has been on the air since then. I work, for you. I work for you and you're going to fire me. Go. What do you say? I say, um, well, I mean, it's all particular to the circumstances of that person, <laughs> isn't it? Um, <laughs> you're asking, is it like Donald Trump? Alec, you're fired. Hey, Alec, you're, fired. <laughs> you're fired. Alec, Alec. you're fired. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, You're fired, Alec. No, wait, you said you do an imitation of me. How would you do it as me? No, I can't do it. Now, now
1: that I'm with you, I can't. You, you know, you strike me. You're really one of the most dense thinker speakers I've ever heard in my life. And what you say is very uh, lucid and illuminating and smart. Only, and on, right, the only, only, only on the radio. Only when it's editing. But seriously, the only on the radio. No, but, but in but nobody in real life, no. You now, no. No, no, In real life when you're doing it now and you're so, you're so seamless and, and the velocity is just breathtaking. But what I'm wondering is I also have an image of you like a prize fighter. So that when they're getting ready for the big fight and they're, you know, they don't have sex with their wife, they don't drink alcohol, they don't need any salt for their blood pressure, they lay there in a bathrobe and watch game shows all day. They rest. They rest. What does Ira Glass do in his private time? I mean, I what work a lot. When you're I, not
2: working. When you have downtime. When I have downtime. Like, do do? Honestly, like, I don't have a huge amount of downtime. Like, usually, on the week, sliver of it you have. Um, I walk my dog. Mm-hmm. Try to spend a little time with my wife. Mm-hmm. Um, what does she do? Uh, she helps run a website for teenage girls with Tavi Givenson. this now. I think she just turned eighteen year old girl who's starring on Broadway but has this website called rookiemag and basically Tavi decided that there should when she was fifteen years old and in high school, she thought as a teenage girl, there was all this culture being marketed to her, and none of it accurately sort of described the world. That She saw it or seemed to capture the things that were most interesting to her, and so she decided she would make that herself and organize kind of an army of young women to do it. It's three posts a day. It's really funny writing, and just like it's, it's wonderful. And so my wife helps her helps her out. I find
1: it. it incredible that even with the slightest prompting, you can give me the bio or the story. You can tell everyone's story but your own. You can tell everyone's story. I can tell my you, own story. You, 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 you only gave us the dog walking, and you said, and I love that.
2: It was very well, wait. I try to spend time with my wife. What other, What do you watch news? Do you watch TV? Do you I, like films, I, music? I mean, honestly, like, I have seen so little of anything in the last probably year just because um, we have the radio show. We started the second show. Right. I've been touring with a dance show. Um, all over the country. And so on the weekends, I'm either going and making a speech to earn enough money to live in New York City because I still work at a public radio salary and live in New York City or I go out with this dance show where I tour with this professional dance troupe where I tell stories and they dance in this way. Whose that idea was that? That was uh, me and the choreographer. It was the choreographer <laughs> of the dance company. We were trying to figure out a way to work together. She's like, well, let's do a thing where we combine our things. And I was like, yes, And, let's and you're do the that. one doing the, the speaking?
1: Yes. So yeah. there must be dancing very fast.
2: Sometimes. <laughs> it must sometimes. be some of the fastest choreography. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. yeah. Um, it must be flying through the air, as a matter
1: of fact. Yes, uh, yeah, But when you, when you say trying to make a living on, on a public radio salary, I mean, you, you could pay yourself, I'm not saying this to embarrass you, but you could pay yourself X and you don't. You fold
2: it all back into the show, correct? Yes. I mean, Why like, did you
1: decide to do that?
2: Because I go on the radio and ask people for money. And I thought that it's unseemly – to be making a crazy amount of money, if a portion of it is money it depends that don't, on how you define it's a crazy amount of money. I mean, I feel like I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I make enough money, and then. To live in New York, you know, like my wife and I we live in like a, you know, like a two-room apartment because it's Manhattan. And it's in Manhattan because I want to be able to be – I don't want to have to commute for four sure. an hour and a half yeah. a day on a train. You know, you because I because I want to have time that isn't either – I don't want to waste an hour and a half a day on a train, especially if I'm walking a dog for an hour a day. And so, so we pay a lot of money for our place. And to afford it, basically, I was like, I don't want to – I don't want to be – Charging public radio listeners for that, what I'll do is I'll go out and give speeches to make that money, and so that's my system. If you had more time, what would you do? I think I would just consume more culture. I would I would go to more movies and read more. Like I still have never seen, you know, half the TV shows that I hear about and I know that I'll like, but I haven't seen. Like in a few months ago, I watched all of Game of Thrones. At some point, you know, a year ago. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Really? Yeah. And are you saying that in the tone of like, no, you did not like it? No, 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 no. I, 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 you know, I, I, don't,
1: I never cast any judgment on what people like in terms know. of entertainment.
2: Yeah, no, and I watched all of Louis. You know, like or I hadn't caught up on the like. I, I can watch season. old
1: episodes of The Match Game on the Game Show Network. I mean, that's where I, that, that's, <laughs> right, my that's my your, comfort zone. No. Like Reminds I'm,
2: me when I was a kid growing up. Love it. Love it. But anyway, so, so no, I do no watching of anything. Like basically I'm working, I'll see a friend maybe for food, see my wife, walk the dog, and then that's, that's it. It's midnight and then and I'll go to the gym. It's not so super glam. And then if I had more time, I would just basically you're working consume you're more working. culture. You're I feel working. like if anything, it's, it's a problem the way I'm doing this because I'm not consuming enough. Do you think it's going to last forever? I don't know. I don't have another plan besides this. Like, this okay. I like this. Like, I like making stuff. I like editing. I like writing. You like I the like show. I like interviewing people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it. Like, and I, people I, love the show. And, and helps. It, it's secure. Like, it just feels like, oh, my God, it's it's there are enough people who like it that it's a totally solid business. And then also, it does well enough that we can experiment. I put out a movie with Mike Birbiglia, you know, a couple years ago. And we can, um, you know, and we do these events where we do them on stage and beam them into movie theaters around the country. And we did a show at BAM where we had, you know, somebody wrote a musical for it and opera and all this stuff built out of real stories, out of tr- journalism turned into like a Broadway musical with real Broadway, you know, Performers, You know, and so, like, it's big enough that we can kind of do anything we want with it. And that's just, you know, it's just lovely. Like, I don't know what else a person could want.
1: Do people... When, when you do the show, uh, do people, only the people in-house, they pitch the ideas, or do people outside pitch you ideas?
2: Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, there was a period where, where, I mean, people write into our website, and there's a place, you know, where you can pitch a story. And then there's a a person or two on staff who go through that looking for the stories that might work. And there are phases where there's something on the show every week or every other week from that list. Like, it's not unusual that people will pitch us, and those stories will end up on the show. So, yeah, I mean, the opening of the show that we did at BAM was the story of this girl, a uh, woman, who accidentally locked herself into a closet. She was an opera singer, but she makes her living partly reading books on tape. And she was in a hotel room, and she's just like, i got to record this book on tape on a deadline. So she goes into the closet and puts, you know, like pillows all around to, like, cushion the sound. And her computer is sitting in the hotel room, and she pulls the microphone because the co- computer had a whirring sound. And she pulls the microphone into the closet, closes the door. She starts to record and then uh, she goes, oh, I messed that up. And she's going to go out and start it over again, go start a new file. And she goes to open the door, and the door is locked. Like, there's something wrong with the mechanism. She can't get out of the closet. <laughs> but the thing is still recording. You hear her, all the steps she goes through in trying to get out of this closet, including yelling to people down the hall, some German tourists go by. And so that was just somebody she wrote us. You know, like, that. that's the opening of the show, That that she told us that story. And, and at some point in the interview, I was like, okay, so if you – you're an opera singer, if you were to stage this as an opera, what would it be? And she's like, I think it would be a minimalist opera, like, you know, just this repetitive music, and I would just sing help, help, help over and over. And I was like, you know, I have the hookup for that. My cousin is Philip Glass, so we had him write. We commissioned that as an opera that we performed on stage at the Brooklyn Academy of Music.
1: Ira Glass has a natural talent for creating compelling radio. I wanted to follow up with him and find
2: out why is his show so successful. We have him. You have me. Hello. I I have you. (laughs) Sounded way more romantic than I meant. It did. You have me. (laughs) Um, Hi, this is Ira Glass.
1: Hi, Ira (laughs) Glass. The bigger life. I can't do it. I can't do it because I can't do it when you try because to do it, it's like, it's like a state of mind. You know what I mean? It's like a state of mind. <laughs> but you – but you know what's funny is you are someone – when I made that comment to you about the announcer thing and people who are a different type of radio broadcaster. But you are someone who does not have uh, – you know, you've got a a good delivery and you're a great radio broadcaster and everything. And the speed of it and the velocity of it is obviously a signature of yours. But what kills me is your mastery of what you say. Like, do you go back? Sometimes you have to record it again and again. Or do you just
2: zip through that thing like you're just shooting down a a luge ride? Oh, I wish I could. I wish I could do that. When we record my parts of the show, I'll do more than one take for sure. Um, but not a lot things. of takes. No, two. <laughs> Can I say, it took me a long time to learn how to perform on the radio. Like, I was so bad at the beginning. I was awful. How so? Like, sometimes I play for students how I sounded, not in my first year or my second year, but in year seven. And I could play for you on your, on your podcast if you want or on your show. Like, like, I'm awful. Like, I had not mastered it. I had to consciously set it as a project for myself of I'm going to try to perform on the air the way I talk.
1: But you, so you wanted to stop doing what?
2: I sounded like somebody imitating an NPR reporter but failing. Okay. If you give me one minute, I could walk into the other room and get a clip and I could play it. Oh, we it have on to have a clip and I can
1: play it. That. Hold on. I'll be right back. You do that. Too bad this isn't television because I'll show you clips of me on the soap opera I was on back in 1982. You don't know what bad is, do you see that?
2: Hold on. This is going to take me a second to bring it up on the board. Please stand by. You sure you want us to hear this now? My job is secure. I'm <laughs> fine. Hold on. Let me just. <laughs> Do you
1: find that, in terms of an editorial ear, do you always have that on over dinner, at a family reunion, wherever you are? Is there an editorial filter to everything, <laughs> you, or do you ever just no, not hear radio be, pieces?
2: No, no, because that would be like a crazy person. <laughs> it's like saying, are you ever not acting? Like, no, of course you turn it off. You do turn it off, of course, of course, of course, because I'm not insane. But if somebody, are you, you a know, medical doctor? Some- <laughs> okay, exactly. okay. if somebody's just to tell a story it's a good story obviously like i you know I'm in the market for stories and you know I think like hey maybe that'll be for the show but that's pretty rare to happen in, in oh, interesting. your life oh interesting yeah hold on here we go here we go Let's okay so again this is not year one year two year three year four year five year six this is year this seven this is you I'm last weekend yeah, yeah exactly weekend. this is last weekend right It's not such a long way from the local grocery store to the international debate over whether sorghum and meat production are causing corn to decline in Latin America. Okay, first of all, that makes no sense, but let's keep going. There's a general air of prosperity here, partly thanks to Mexican imports of U.S. grains which helped boost our farm economy. I just want to say, if you're going to be an announcer, just don't <laughs> emphasize every other word no, but at say, random. You, but what kills me is you are
1: doing exactly what, like, you know, uh, 60% of all the NPR radio hosts do is hitting that, you know. One of the things we realize about the downturn in the stock market today is the revolution, and they're doing exactly what you're doing.
2: It's before I understood that, that to sound okay on the radio, you should just talk like you, a person talks, like a human being talks, like you're playing a character and the character is a human being. Mexico is now one of our biggest grain customers, buying a half billion to a billion dollars worth every year, including corn to feed its people and sorghum to feed its livestock. This helps cut our own trade deficit and benefits everyone in the U.S. economy. But in Mexico, this policy has led to fewer tortillas for the poor and on appetizing tortillas for everyone else. I would just note also <laughs> that <laughs> that this makes no sense at all. Like the writing is awful. It's not oh. just that the performance is awful. Like literally it, you like well, you can't tell what awful. the story not is awful. about. It's a
1: style. I mean that was you. You were working it out. I mean it is funny. You do make Kai Rizdahl sound like Lenny Bruce, but it's
2: incredible. I mean I, I, there must be an acting version of this because I think when people become reporters they want to sound like the real deal you know what I mean and so you want to sound I wanted to sound like a reporter and so this is what I thought well, the, you do. the
1: equivalent in, in, in the business is I was did a TV show years ago and in the show there was a woman who was the matriarch of a town and I had the scene with her where I'm you know kind of shaming her like well you know how could you do this and turn your back and we did take one and I was like you know how could you do this and like the tears are rolling down my face take two and finally Like, take through the director goes, What are you doing? (laughs) And I go, I'm sorry. He goes, What do you, why are you charging it with so much emotion? Like, you're playing the whole episode in this one scene. You're putting every beat of the entire. He's like, Well, you don't got to calm down. We're going to get there. (laughs) When you're a young actor, you emote and you kind of imbue things with that. Unnecessarily and inappropriately, just to do it. You think that's that you, you do too
2: much. You think that that's acting. It's you funny, do too I, much. I, I interviewed Billy Collins, who is the poet laureate, whose writing I really love, and so idiosyncratic. Like he so sounds like himself. And I asked him, like, did you always write like this? He's like, no. At first, I wrote like a be- I was, thought I was a beat poet, you know, like, and I tried to write like that. I think it's common that people try to do like the official deal that they think it is before they realize, like, no, I'm going to do a version of me in this. How do you think your life would be different if you had a child? I mean, I would work less. You work less. You know? Yeah. I would just, I would work less. And I'm sure there's a whole world of things that one gets out of having children. I mean, I know there are that that I'm not getting in my life. There's a kind of love that people have for their kids and an experience you have raising a person from a baby to an adult That's profound, that has many parts of it that like I am never gonna have. Like and I feel a little out of touch with with a really common experience that lots of people have. But but I'm okay with this choice. In what way is the show reflective of who you are? I mean, the show reflects my taste. But also I have to say, the taste of my coworkers. You know, like it's not just mine at this point, like it's something that we all share. And I happen to be the front man. And in that that way, it's different than than it was from the beginning. Like, I am the front man for this thing that we make together, like somebody who's in a band that's been playing for a long time.
1: So my last question for you, because I know we're going to lose you, is um, what tips do you have for people that are interviewers? Oh, wow. Um, What tips do you have uh, for me, quite frankly?
2: I think, I mean, I've I've heard tons of your shows, and I, I really like your show. I think you're a very skilled interviewer. Um, And one of the things that you do, an interview is a party and you're the host of the party and the interviewee will do what you do. What you model is what they do too. Like Mm -hmm. it's just human nature. And so if you tell a lot of funny stories, they will tell you funny stories back. And if you tell personal stories, they'll tell personal stories back. And I feel like there was a phase in your show where – for whatever reason, you had on a series of people, and it was like Herb Alpert. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't remember if Dick it was like this, but Herb Alpert was definitely like this, where people who went through their lives and were hugely successful and then had their hearts broken or had failed and then had to claw their way back. Where in those interviews, you talked about yourself in this way that made them talk about themselves more. It's not exactly an interviewing trick, but in interviews, you know, I will talk about myself with the interviewees because I know that if I talk about myself in a way that's real, first of all, they feel safer because I'm also talking about myself and will open up more. And then they talk about themselves. And so it's like a fair swap. And the other thing I
1: try to do is like with Alpert is a perfect example of the first question I ask myself is what are they used to? Herb Alpert and his partner, Jerry Moss, sold A&M Records for like hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars back then. Mm-hmm. And this is a guy that had artistic success as a musician. He was very admired as an instrumentalist. He and had he as many a, hits
0: as like the Beatles. Exactly, yeah. He, 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 like he was top of the charts number. back then. Yeah.
1: And then. And then he has his career as a record producer with all these legendary acts. And then they walk in the room and so many people in the room might go, I don't know who that is. But you have to sit there and go, this person was big time once. I mean, they were big. You know, and you got to treat them like they're big. Oh, that's so interesting. At one time, they you have to treat them with the respect that they once commanded. I, I, the the phrase I always use is,
2: what are they used to? And I give it to them. That is so interesting. You see, I never interview anybody that famous. Like, I don't interview anybody <laughs> who's big. I sort of took myself out of that game because it made me so nervous. And also, I think that that's a different kind of interview than I'm especially good at. Like, I feel like interviewing somebody who's famous – you're constantly battling against the fact that they've been interviewed so many times and had to tell their story so many times. And so you constantly are having to struggle for an angle in on them that will seem alive to them and and no knock against them like it's hard to be interviewed over and over and over about your own life and how many stories uh-huh. do any of us have and how many anecdotes do we have that are even worth telling uh-huh. other people especially a group of strangers and then the thing that I think Terry Gross does really beautifully and the thing that I hear you do is like it's almost like an empathetic act of like like what is the world to them, and how am I going to angle something in that will get them to say something? Like I remember one of my favorite questions I ever heard Terry Gross ask. She 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 was interviewing Ricky Jay. You know who that uh-huh. is, right? Yes, the the magician and um and sort of scholar of magic, but also an incredible uh, card magician. Yes, and um and super smart man. Jesus. Anyway, so Scary. so so she's interviewing him, and yeah, she says to him at some point in the interview, uh, this thing which requires like so going inside his head. She says to him, um. Uh, sometimes, are there ever any magic tricks that you do where the thing that we don't see that you know is happening is actually more interesting than the thing that we see? And he totally got excited. He's like, yes! Wow. He's like, yes, absolutely. And she says, well, can you tell me about that? And he's like, oh, no, of course not. (laughs) You fool.
1: (laughs) You child.
2: Yeah, but for her to even get to that question means so imagining her way into his life. And I feel like when interviewing goes well like somebody's just has good taste about doing that you know you know what I realize you are now I'm going to
1: end with this you know what I realize you are now you're like the Alan Ladd you're like the Shane of radio hosts I don't even know who those are you don't know who Shane is <laughs> I know that
2: that's in a movie, the movie <laughs> Shane. With kids. Alan Ladd played Shane and he kills Wilson the bad guy at the end I'm doing you a favor here because no forty percent, seventy percent, eighty percent of your audience doesn't know who Shane is. okay? Of course just, they do.
1: Just, what do you How, think my audience year? is? Lena Dunham's audience. I'm fifty-six years old. Of course my audience. I hosted. Um, I'll have you know I hosted um, Turner Classic Movies. Of course my <laughs> audience knows who Shane is in Alan Ladd. What year did that movie come out? 1968. Who or cares something? what year it came out? How dare you question my provenance? Let's
2: bring along the young people. The young people should be How here. How dare with you, you too. derail
1: me? Paying you the highest. <laughs> compliment which you have the quickness of the of the most lethal gunfighter even when you're talking extemporaneously like now you are so goddamn quick it's scary you have some condition you're like rain man you have some condition like okay, a, 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 that what's movie. the one jeffrey rush played where he was the piano player i know the one yeah i don't remember the name oh of movie, damn see i see i remember shane and we don't remember the movie shine Shine. <laughs> was you're shine. like shine.
2: You are so damn fast. It's just scary. Am I Shane or am I Shine? That's going to be my new Twitter handle. You remember how Shane, Shane ends, right? Shine. How does it end? How does it end? Shane, I or don't Shane? Know, Exactly.
1: Shane and Shine. See, there you are again trumping me. God damn it. In the end, they, the boy, Brandon Duval yells, Come back, Shane. Shame, is he like the greatest back. shooter in the West or something Don't say that Shooter deal? that makes you sound lame. <laughs> gunfighter. He's a gunfighter. He's a gunfighter,
2: right? You, I'm right, telling you, shooter is what we use for video games. A right. shooter he's not is a good oh He's my a one person. He's you a one person. He's a first person shooter. How old are you again? <laughs> 55. We're the no, same
1: age. You're kidding me. Well, you live in a young man's world. You're listening to Here's the Thing. This is Alec Baldwin. Let me just say uh, for this follow-up call, thank you, Shane, for giving us a moment to to, to, to double back with you. Come back.
2: I'd love to come back. All All right. Goodbye.
0: Okay, fine, I'll fess up. All the new summer stuff I got, it's on sale at Kohl's. And the deals are so good. Like our Sonoma Goods for Life patio furniture, it was 30% off. Got 30% off backyard games, too. And even picked up grilling tools for 20% off. Best part? I saved an extra 20% and got it in an hour with free store pickup. So now we're all set for summer, and I'm pretty sure we've got a cookout planned every weekend. Select Style's 20% offer ends June 27th. Some exclusions apply. See store or kohls.com for details. Two local families at the center of the most notorious crime in Ohio's history. Come down to your knees. Hands behind your back. Eight people dead, all from the same family. This was calculated, planned out. This was cold, 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 blood. Now, on the five-year anniversary of the Python Massacre, and in the middle of production on this podcast... Breaking news right now. ...a shocking confession none of us were expecting. Jacob what plea do you wish to get her I am guilty, Listen to the Piketon Massacre, Return to Pike County, a production of KT Studios every Wednesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.